This morning's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, Matthew 14. Just whilst you're getting that, just to put this in a little bit of context, the passage this morning from Matthew 14, verse 22, follows the beheading of John the Baptist and then the feeding of the 5,000. So here Jesus is testing the faith of the disciples and we are reading about Jesus walking on the water. So Matthew 14, commencing at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the, on the lake, they were terrified. <clears throat> it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God. Thanks and praise be to him. Truly, he is the son of God, isn't he? Thanks to Jesus. Um, before we go too far, let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, um, thank you, Jesus, for you are truly a son of God. Um, you are our saviour our King and our Lord. Um, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your salvation, Lord. And thank you for us who being here today um, to listen to your words. We pray that you open our eyes and ears um, and take heart of what you've got to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Um, I've got a little video to show you of what, if you haven't been to Vietnam, I'll show you of what Vietnamese traffic would be like for you who live in Tari.
And if you look carefully in the middle of the picture, there's a guy in a yellow uniform. He's a traffic controller. He's doing a wonderful job. Can you spot him? Here he is. There's another friend. Oop, he's going to have a smoker now. That's good, thank you. Uh, that's not even the peak hours in Ho Chi Minh City, um, where they have about 13, 14 million people and just about the same amount of motorbikes. Everyone got a motorbike or two or three. My family, we got four for four people. And that's just the easiest way to get around um, because the infrastructure, the French, they built this city in 19 or 1850s for 300,000 people. Now we've got 13 million people, and that's just how people got around. Um, a couple of years ago, um, uh, when I was in Vietnam, I kind of hosted a lot of short-term mission teams. And one of the questions, one of the common questions that people who came from overseas come to Vietnam or Ho Chi Minh City would ask me is, how do you cross the road? Because, you know, with that kind of traffic, and clearly there's some pedestrian crossings, but people kind of, they don't stop for you. So if you want to cross from one end to the other, how do you do it? I said, oh, that, well, that's fair enough. I never thought of that. But yeah, um, I've got no secret, but I think there's three things that if you do well, you can cross the road from one end to the other in one piece. Well, at least you can hope for the best anyway. So if you want to cross the road, what you do to start with is you step out on the road. You don't wait for people to stop. You just take that step, one step, onto the road, and you proceed slowly. You don't run, never step back, move forward. And the reason why you don't run is when you run, like people don't have time to stop for you, you get run over. And if you step back, because people kind of, as soon as they know that you're going for it, they will go around you, that you step back, you get run over, well, that's your fault. So remember, Make that initial step, keep moving forward, never step back. Those three things, if you remember and you do it well, you will make it, hopefully. And I suspect that's what we saw in the story today when Peter got asked to step out of the boat. Come, follow me, Jesus asked him when Peter you know, wanted to follow Jesus to get to where he was. <laughs> Step out of your comfort zone. Step out of your boat, Peter, and follow me. 
make that initial step. And I suspect that is one of the hardest things for our own life and our Christian's life to make that initial step, to step out of your comfort zone. Um, as um, I, I explained earlier, I was born in a Catholic family. My dad was a very devout um, family um, father, and he always wanted us kids. I got a younger brother um, to continue this tradition of his family. Catholicism is our kind of identity and our tradition. So for some unknown reason in Vietnam, every Sunday, the mass starts at five o'clock in the morning. Like you have to get up early, get ready and go to the church at five and you know, listen to the priest and all that kind of thing. And I'm not kind of a um, morning person. So <laughs> get up at five, really, every Sunday? So for me, faith back then was something very superficial. It's something that you have to do every week, day in, day out, and you hope for the best. Because in the Catholic faith, you know, they don't encourage people to have a relationship with Jesus, but you have to do things in order, in order to please God, and then you hope for the best. So I thought for me, it didn't make any sense. Until I became, you know, followed Jesus, and I went to a Baptist church, and they started their service at half past nine. I said, all these years, I got ripped off. <laughs> um, but when I was 18, I met this um, person, and his name was Wa, H-O-A, and, um, and he apparently, later on I found out, he was a missionary sent from Glo Global Interaction from South Australia to Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, and he was a Vietnamese-born person, but he came to Australia as an adopted son to an Australian family during the war, and then he lived in Adelaide for 30 years. He had polio in Vietnam, so he went back to Vietnam as a missionary, but uh, he couldn't explain what missionaries for us, you know, it didn't make any sense for us. So he said, oh, I'm just a, um, a social worker, try to help people here in Vietnam. And what he did was um, he started a couple of English classes to teach young people like myself English. You know, Vietnamese young people, they always want to learn English so that later on when you find a job and you can speak English, you can get a better pay or better job and all that kind of things. So, so I was part of that group. And, you know, English is, you know, used to be taught in Vietnamese kind of classes, but we use American English. So why I came as an Australian person, I couldn't understand him. You know, like, this guy, you don't speak English properly. Um, but one day he, um, for some unknown reason, he asked me, oh, Mark, um, before our English class, we have this little devotion time um, where we kind of got together and, you know, we kind of read the Bible and we pray to Jesus and that kind of thing. Would you like to come? Oh, I didn't know you were Catholic. No, 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 I'm, uh, I'm not Catholic, I'm a believer, a follower of Jesus. Well, what's the difference? Um, he said, well, just come, we got good food, you know. <laughs> okay. Um, so I came and I remember that was the first time in my whole life, that was in 2009, I was physically, for the first time, physically touched the Bible. 
the Holy Bible, because in the Catholic Church, you're not supposed to touch it. That was the, the priest's job to do it and open it up and read it for yourself, I remember. And then when it was time for them to pray, they closed their eyes and they prayed. Where's your prayer book? You know, normally people would pray from the prayer book. They said, no, 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 we have a relationship with Jesus, personal relationship with Jesus. We believe that we can talk to him directly without any kind of written prayers. Oh, that's interesting. So I kind of kept coming back to that group and for about a year, and later in that year, um, there was a friend, um, part of that group, invited me to his church, and it's called the Grace Baptist Church, and that's the only Baptist church in Ho Chi Minh City at the time. And in Vietnam, you can't evangelize to people on the streets. You can't, you know, share your faith openly but you're allowed to ask people or invite people into your church building and then, you know, you do whatever you want with them. But <laughs> how do you invite people into your church? But anyway, that friend managed to invite me to their church and that was a week before Christmas in 2009, so they had all this music, carols night, basically, um, to share with the people who don't know Jesus. So I was there and it was lovely and music was fine and all that kind of thing. And uh, pastor was sharing a sermon on John 3.16. And I sat there and I thought to myself, That's his, this is lovely and I, you know, I knew God loved me and all that kind of thing. So at the end of that night, the pastor would ask the question, you know, is there anyone here who wants to receive Jesus? But I misunderstood him. I thought he asked, is there anyone here who knows Jesus? So I said, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of know him. So I popped my hand up. And then I looked around and I thought, what kind of church is it that no one knows Jesus? <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, the pastor looked around and said, oh, there's someone got their hands up. Would you like to come up here? <laughs> what? <laughs> so I said, no, 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 you know, you know, you've got to be joking. But anyway, the, the person who next to, who sit next to me said, oh, you've got your hands up, you can't say no. So the next thing I knew, he pushed me <laughs> right through the aisle. And so at that stage, I was like, well, no turning back. <laughs> so I came up here. And then, you know, he said, oh, so you've got your hands up. Would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? And then I just said, sure. So he said, oh, right, the whole congregation kind of stood up, put their hands out and everyone was praying for me, including the pastor. They all got their hands out and prayed. And imagine the energy and the spirit was filled in that room. And I was there standing there, or actually kneeling, and I was crying. And Vietnamese people, Vietnamese men, we don't cry, particularly in front of public. I was crying and I felt there's something going in my heart that I couldn't describe. You know, this, remember when you first met Jesus? That peace and that love that you felt that you could not describe. So, you know, at the end, everyone clapped their hands, say, you're a Christian now, good job. <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> so I came, you know, the next day I went to Wah's um, house and I explained to him what happened the night before. 
And Wa said, you know what, 25 years ago when I laying in my bed about to commit suicide, I felt the same thing. I felt the same thing. The Lord has entered into your heart. Okay, so how do I, you know, how do I go back and explain to my father now, you know, I have a relationship with Jesus. It's never heard of. But anyway, from then on, it's almost like now looking back, it's almost like the Lord's kind of called me unknowingly, come out of your comfort zone and follow me, come. I took that initial step unknowingly, step out of my comfort zone and follow him. And it's just almost like in the scripture, as soon as you step out of your comfort zone, soon Peter step out of the boat. Guess what happened? The wind just picked up and he started sinking. Lord, Lord, save me. I'm sinking. I'm sinking, Lord. And then follow, if you remember the story, the scripture said, immediately, immediately, Jesus got his hand out and caught Peter. Immediately. Remember that word. Because I'm not sure about your life, but my life, most of the time when I sink, and I sink a lot, and I cry out a lot, most of the time, immediately, Jesus got his hands out. So soon I became Christian, I dropped out of university because I didn't feel like that's what Jesus wanted me to do. And for my parents, that was a, you know, I remember the year after I became Christian, I dropped out of uni, I came home and I explained it to my parents that I've, you know, I don't want to do uni anymore. How devastated they were. I still remember my, my mum, her tear was rolling in her face because Vietnamese, Parents, your children is your retirement funds. You know, there's no Centrelink in Vietnam, so basically your children will look after you when you're older. So they, they work really hard. My parents work really hard to make sure that I get to university, get a degree, get a good job, and then later on I'll be able to look after them. But now look at this rebellious son who dropped out of uni, who has a relationship with Jesus, what he's doing, you know, their retirement fund is gone. I was like, what do I do? I can't explain it to my parents. I can't explain it to everyone. I was sinking. But Jesus got his hands out. So if you could follow the next slide. So that's when I became Christian. That's the Vietnamese Baptist Church there. And the next slide... Next, uh, go back one slide. That one. See, Wa is in the middle of the picture with his wheelchair. So I came to Wa again. <laughs> Wa, I drop out of uni. I don't know what to do. Is there, is there any advice that you want to give me? And at the time, Wa had this vision um, that he wanted to open a vocational training center for people with disability in Ho Chi Minh City because why himself he got polio, um, but he did a bit of research and it says there's about 10% of people in Vietnam, 10% of the population has some sort of disability and mainly it caused by Agent Orange. Have you heard of Agent Orange? So 10% of 93 million people 
had some sort of disability, and the Vietnamese generally believe of the karma. So, you know, what happened, what you did in the past, now your children got some sort of disability, is your punishment. So a lot of kids end up all hiding inside the house, never got a chance to go to school, never have any education. So if you go to Vietnam 10 years ago, you would see a lot of people um, with disability begging or selling lottery tickets, trying to make a living. So why had this vision that he wanted to train to give p these people education, English, business skills, any kind of skills that they need so that they can go and find a job, a better job being a nurse, doctor, teacher, and that kind of thing. So why had this vision? And he explained it to me. I said, wow, that's a great vision. He said, would you like to be a part of this vision? I said, well, I've got nothing else to lose. Sure. He said, I would like you to come on board. You know, at the, at the time, the vision, I got a vision, I got a piece of land, that's it. I would like you to come on board. Would you like to come? I said, yes. He said, but, there's always a but, but we can't pay you. You know, we just don't have enough money to pay you. And I said, wow, that's great. Now I'm going to come home, I'm going to explain to my parents, I got a job without pay. <laughs> how does that work out? I said, well, I'll give you a year and see how it goes, and if not, then I'll go and find something else to do. So it turned out from one year to be a five-year commitment from 2010, 2014. And during that time, things got really tough because working with, this, working with people with disability was mighty hard. I didn't realize how hard it was because I never knew that would take someone half an hour to put their feet into their shoes. I never knew how hard it was to have a shower, not being able to reach out to the knob to turn the, sh the water. I never knew how hard it was for someone to read a piece of paper without getting so close. And they said, you're not us. You, you don't have any disability. You don't have to go through what we have to go through. You don't have to feel the feeling of being looked down by the society and, you know, and got told that you are not good enough. You're useless. That was really tough. So I said to Wild, what do I do? And Wild pointed me to Psalm 139. You're wonderfully and fearfully made. Doesn't matter if you haven't got a, a leg. Doesn't matter if you haven't got an eye. Doesn't matter if you haven't got an arm. You're still wonderfully and fearfully made. How do you explain it to those people and love them like Jesus does? So it took a lot of work and efforts and you know endless hours, you know, spending with those people. But at the end of my time there, I became great friends with those people. Even that guy in the middle with the crutches, it, when he came into our center, he thought he was useless. You know, I'm not good enough and you know, I'm not going to be able to find anyone who's gonna be my wife. Well, guess what? Last year in September, I was able to do his wedding because someone decided that he was the most handsome person in the world and she wanted to spend the rest of her life with him. 
because of Jesus' love. So, you know, working with these people just kind of gave me this great passion for the gospel, to see the gospel, the power of the gospel to transform people. And I looked around, you know, when I was in Vietnam, the statistics saying there's less than 1% of people in Vietnam who know, who personally know Jesus. 1%. So if you're good at maths, how you work out how many people who don't know Jesus in Vietnam, 93 million people, 1% of that know Jesus, so basically 92 or something, how do you go to sleep every night knowing that there's someone out there that you know from their birth to their death never have a chance to hear the gospel. And there are people with disability. There are people who live, still live under $2.50 every day, barely make a living. How do you go to sleep like that? So I explained it to Wa, and Wa said to me, well, I think um, God might, might have had a calling on you to do something bigger than what we do here, even though we love you, but I think you should step out of your comfort zone because it has been your comfort zone. I think it's time for you to step out. So I was like, okay, so what does that look like for me to step out of this comfort zone? Well, I said, go and do some Bible study. Sure, how? <laughs> There's no Bible colleges in Vietnam, for crying out loud. Go to Australia, perhaps. I've never been to Australia. I don't know where it is. <laughs> somewhere in the map. So I got a, an opportunity to go to Australia in 2014 in August. Blackstump. Remember Blackstump? So I went to that and I went to Morling and I actually met Ross Clifford and Graham Hill. Um, and they had an interview and all that kind of thing and they said, oh great, you know, we would love to have you um, to come and study with us. But as an international student, you have to pay everything upfront. Oh, how much? Oh, about $45,000. What, $45,000? $45,000 dong? Vietnamese dong? No, $45,000. You have to pay everything up front. I didn't even have a bank account at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? What do I do? So uh, Ross said, oh, you know, go, go home. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he said very you know, easy, don't worry about it, just apply and see how you go. You still have to jump a couple of hoops, you have to pass your English test and you have to get your visa and all that kind of thing. Go and do all that, okay? So I went home and I applied, all that kind of thing, and I got accepted. And I managed to book my flight um, to come to Australia in January 2015. It was in December. I still don't know how to pay for the thing and let alone living. Where do I live? How do I pay for my food? How do I pay to get around? I didn't have a job. I didn't, like my parents wouldn't be able to pay for me. About a week before I was due to fly over, I got an email from Graham and says, well, we're happy to pay for you for the first year, you know, $15,000 upfront, but you still have to work out your accommodations and that kind of thing. So you're almost like in a mixed bag, you're excited, but then you're not, you know, <laughs> yes, thank you. But where do I live? 
uh, how did you, you know, that kind of thing. And then the day after an e that email from Graham, there was a lady in Newcastle called Carol Stewart. And she sent me an email. She knew I was coming to Australia and said, have you got anywhere to stay? No. Would you like to come and stay with us in Lake Macquarie? <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, that's great. I, never, I didn't know where Lake Macquarie was. <laughs> so I came over and she actually was at the airport welcoming me and it was in, we were in, so we got a train and I was sitting on a train and so I knew where Sydney was. I said, well, we're going to Lake Macquarie. I was sitting in the train, it was like sitting for hours, like an hour, and I looked on my watch, an hour, two hours, two and a half hours from Lake Macquarie to Sydney. So do I have to do that every day? <laughs> because morning starts at half past eight on Tuesday and Wednesday at half past nine. So from where Carol is, you have to travel from the train station to Macquarie Park at two and a half hours, but where she is, there's no bus to get to the train station. You have to walk from her place to the town centre, Toronto centre, for half an hour, and then from there get on the bus to the train station and down there. So it's almost like three, four hours altogether, the journey one way. So you do both ways for about eight hours. So all those years of getting up early, go to the Catholic church, kind of pay off. <laughs> um, you had to get up at 4, 4.30 and, you know, try to do that. Um, summer was okay. Winter, my good Lord. <laughs> I came from Vietnam. <laughs> it was so cold. But I, I did it for a year. And, and then um, there was a position came up at Balcom Hills Baptist Church. You know, they wanted someone who's young and to be their student pastor. I got the job, and then someone decided that um, they would help me um, to come and stay at their place in Borkham Hills. And I looked up from Borkham Hill to Morling. Oh, there's only half an hour. I can slip in. <laughs> <laughs> and then a family, they have a car. And I said, would you like to use the car to travel? You can have the car. We pay everything for you. And then from there, to now, I finished two degrees. I never have to pay a cent for my degree. Not a cent. I never failed a subject. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, that, that's a miracle itself. Because, you know, you know, Chris, those lecturers, they like to use the big words, you know. <laughs> and you're like, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> Reading, writing everything in English, so God, have, God must have got something in me. I don't know what it is, but he got me through. Remember, Jesus got his hands out. Jesus got his hands out. During my time in, at Morling, I always have this, you know, wanted to go back to Vietnam. And that was actually the deal that I, you know, Ross and Graham and I have. And every time I see Ross and I, you're going back to Vietnam? Yeah. Because Ross says, most of the people who come out here to study anything, particularly theology, they then decide to stay, which is fine. But in those countries, in Asian countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, and China, there's a great need for people who've been, who have some sort of theology to come back and lead the church. 
to grow the church and share the gospel and all that kind of thing, if people come over and stay, then it's kind of pointless, right? So come, going to Vietnam. You, you go to Vietnam? Yes, I am. Um, so, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know what sort of ministry I should involve in that kind of thing. So I decided to travel um, back and forth from Sydney back to Vietnam and travel, you know, back and down the country. And in 2016, I had a, um, a travel companion called Stephen from my church. And Stephen is, he was 17 at the time. And he was a, he's, a, he's kind of a person who's never been to, never been out of Australia before. And he lives in West Penn and he was kind of Caucasian kind of area. So he went to Vietnam and the first thing he got to the airport, the first thing he said was, wow, there's a lot of Asians around here. <laughs> Yeah, we're part of Asia, yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we had a great time and, you know, we, we saw, we visited a lot of churches and ministries and that kind of thing. And I thought to myself, well, I can do this, I can do this and can do this. Uh, we arrived in Hanoi on a morning winter. It was cold and it was dark. And when I normally, when I travel, I have my backpack with me and, you know, where I kept my passports and cameras and money and credit cards and that kind of thing and a bag of my clothes and wherever I go I make sure I got my backpack first because that's all the most important things there um, and uh, we arrived in Hanoi at a bus station and and we would try to find where we stay and all that kind of thing and we walk down the road and I realized I haven't got my backpack I left my backpack at the bus station. So I ran, you know, almost ran so fast in my whole life, ran right back. And of course, the backpack wasn't there. So I lost everything, all my, you know, all my passport, all my money, all my credit cards, all gone. And it, it's quite a humbling kind of experience. You know, like normally you, you have your money or you have your credit card, you run out, you go to the ATM, you draw money out, or you go to the hotel and you show your passport and they check you in and that kind of thing. But this time I didn't have any. I couldn't prove who I was. Um, my name is Dukson Pham. How do I prove that? None. They went to the hotel and they said, well, we can't check you in because you haven't got any form of ID. I was angry. I was like... Uh, and I thought to myself, this must be the sign from the Lord saying, God, stay away from Hanoi, you know, <laughs> it's a bad place. <laughs> but I was angry. I said, Lord, what are you doing? Like, wh why did this happen to me? You know, like, it's almost like your instinct. When things happen, when things wrong, you kind of blame someone. And I was blaming God. Like, wh what have you done to me, Lord? So the hotel people said, oh, you need to go to the police station and and report what happened to your stuff and hopefully they'll give you some kind of piece, of, traveling piece of paper so that you could travel. So I went to the police station and, you know, told a guy and what happened. And he said, oh, that's fine, you know, writing a report and then I've signed my name and you should be okay. While I was doing it, there was this lady coming right through the police station. She was crying, she was in distress and she was holding a little baby, a boy. Both of them were crying. And I said, oh, what's going on? And the police guard, a young guy, he looked at me and said, you know what to do, how to handle a crying lady? I said, well, I'm not married. You are. You should know how to handle that. <laughs> <laughs> it 
It's, oh, okay. So he came out and he got a glass of water for the lady and, you know, the lady kind of calmed down. She explained it, that she arrived. She's one of the tribes. There's about 26 groups of people in Hanoi around area. There's a lot of mountains there. And she was one of the tribe. And her baby boy had a little heart disease that the local hospital couldn't treat it. So they decided to come down to Hanoi because there's better facilities there. Um, but they didn't know where the hospital was. And because everything had to be paid up front. So the lady's been saving, you know, buying, selling ducks and chickens and rice and whatnot, saving enough money to pay for the bill. So she arrived with two plastic bags, one with her clothes, the other one with her money and her paperwork, trying to find this hospital. As she was finding this hospital, this man on his motorbike pulled over and start, started talking to, him, to her where you're from, what you're doing here, and that kind of thing. Is there anything I can help? And she started, oh, someone wanted to help. And then she explained, and he said, I know where this, this hospital is. You know, why don't you hop on my motorbike and I'll take you there? Hop on, put your bags on my bike. So she did. She put her two bags in his motorbike, and guess what? The next thing, he just took off with everything that she'd been saving. And of course, he couldn't take him, the baby boy, to the hospital. How would you do that to someone like that? How, would, how on earth, how dare you, I thought to that man, how dare you doing that to that lady? But instantly, that moment, instantly, I felt like a slap in my face. I heard this voice saying, this lady, this boy, and that man on the motorbike, they are my sheep. But they don't know me yet. They don't know I'm their good shepherd. These are the people that I have died on that cross there for them. But they don't know me. So I want you to come and be amongst them and share my love to those people. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> So is that what? You, so is it? This is where you want to meet me to be, Lord. Yep. All this education, all this opportunity, and all this time that I ask you to step out of your comfort zone, this is the place. So I came back and I talked to Global Interaction, and and they all affirmed, "Yep, we want to work with you. We want to be partner with you to share the gospel to those." people, to work with those people with disability, to work with those mothers, to work with those children who have got nothing because we believe God is working, doing something great in Vietnam and, you know, they said we have about, in Vietnam we have about 30 years from now on because there's an emerging middle class it's getting grow bigger and bigger at the moment. People don't have enough, but about 30 years' time, the Vietnamese will be very wealthy. By that time, it will be much harder to share the gospel to those people. So we've got 30 years. Well, I'm 28, so nearly 30. So I've got 30 years. I'll be there, working amongst those people. So my, my fiancé, Nock, and I, we're planning to get married here in Australia and then we'll head off and start our work in Vietnam, in Hanoi, 
get involved with the um, house church ministries. You know, there's, ch- there's a movement of house church growing in China, and it's happening in Hanoi as well. So we will get involved with that. And we just do, because we can't have church building, but we just do, you know, small groups and have meals together and just love on each other and share the gospel. So we're planning to do that, but we can't do that without your help. The first thing is, you know, we need lots of prayers. Um, Vietnam is still a communist country. And so there's a possibility that we might get caught, but if we're wise enough, we won't be. We shouldn't be, but who knows? We also need people who come on board and support us financially if, they, if people can and continue to pray for us. So thank you very much for your church and your support because your give would give us, would go further in Vietnam um, and our work there. Um, so thank you very much for having me here today. Um, and if you would like to chat more, I'll be down there um, to chat. Um, and if you ever come to Vietnam, to Hanoi, you might be able to stay with us for a discount fee. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll show you around. But thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm deeply touched and uplifted when I'm here today. Thank you.